and welcome to the next episode of Integrated, the Community Paramedicine Podcast. It's Jonah Thompson again, and then this week I'm talking to Ari Breslauer from New York about some of the stuff they got to do. He's been involved with uh, community paramedicine now for a few years. We got a chance to interact after a conference uh, couple years back. And they were able to really implement something that a lot of us have been talking about, but I haven't actually heard done. And that was to build a partnership with a a hospice program specifically to address some of their needs. So uh, here's Ari. He can tell you a little more about himself. Thanks, Jonah. Appreciate it. I have been a lifelong EMS guy, 20 years in the service. I I really love patients. I I spent some time getting a graduate degree in public health. And in public health, I learned a lot about patient populations and people who are not only underserved, but people who are like, let's say, misguided through the health system. You know, we have a tremendous health system in America. I think most people can agree that it's not properly utilized. And so, so finding a solution to that has always been a passion of mine. And then we, about three years ago, we started getting approached by payers. So someone who was interested in working with us to, well, let's put it this way. They had a problem. Their problem was that their hospice patients were actually getting transported by EMS, um, 911 EMS, right to the hospital. In the ER, the patient was being assessed and then admitted to the hospital. After they were getting admitted, they would be disenrolled from the hospice service, and that created a big problem for our hospice uh, folks, the, the payer that we had in that group. And so, Joe and I were just talking about the payer and the fact that they came to us, and they, they said, hey, we have this problem. How can you help us? And I think the part of the success with like the payer we had to talk about the successes of like that relationship was that our payer was willing to take a risk, you know, willing to do something that had not been done before in hospice care. And that situation was paramedics coming into a home, doing a full assessment, bringing all their gear in, looking the part, playing the part, but not transporting the patient. And so we would walk in and and most of the time we started IV, we gave X amount of fluid, we would give Zofran, we gave morphine. A lot of these hospice patients are in pain Hospice patients are not just patients that have cancer. Some of them are just their diagnosis that they have six months or less less to live. And our role as palliative care hospice partners was to make the patient feel comfortable. And so what better way to make someone feel comfortable than in the comfort of their own home? And so um, we started rocking and rolling, but our pair was willing to take that risk that paramedics are going to go in, do this treatment for these patients and leave them there. And... um, Sometimes they're going to be left without like the best vital signs. That's something on our side as paramedics that we had, a, I, I had to really start training and really looking into. And so spent a lot of time working on that paradigm shift, building that culture with the paramedic team and saying, hey, this patient is going to have a blood pressure of 80 over 60, but you have to understand their DNR, DNI, they are on hospice service. Our job is to make them comfortable. And that could mean 10 milligrams of morphine, could mean 200 of fluid. It could mean nothing. It could, mean, it could mean that we're not actually going to do any kind of advanced clinical intervention on this patient, and we're going to leave them there. And so as the months and years like went on, we, we built this culture, with, and we also built the confidence in our, in our payer. Our hospice partner like, only has fantastic things to say about us because we, we did such a good job at making their patients comfortable, bettering the patient's, let's say, end of life, right? Even though they're not going to continue on, they're going to be comfortable. And that's, that, was the, that was the goal. The goal was to make sure. them comfortable and also not take them off of the service of the hospice service, you know, not have them be disenrolled from the hospice service. And therefore now our parents not getting paid and that makes them unhappy. Um, keeping them on the hospice service, keeping the patient at home, it really was a win-win for everybody. And honestly, it's a win-win, win-win for the paramedic too, because the paramedic and, and they're typically their EMT partner the two of them don't have to carry this patient down three flights of stairs because there's no elevator in the house. 
Well, that's uh, just New York's to... problem. New York, New York just needs to build uh... elevators. Um, <laughs> yeah, but well... no, I, 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 mean, I really hear you about the hospice stuff. So one of those little known facts about me is that my first job in healthcare right after EMT school was actually doing home care for some hospice patients, kind of as an aide or as a tech working with the hospice nurses. And it was absolutely eye-opening to see. And you know, now here we are, you know, 25 plus years later, uh, looking back and realizing that that was such a critical foundation to the, what we're doing today. And I try to bring a lot of that into you know our community paramedicine program here. Um, And the way we've often done it is by bringing in uh, the hospice folks to our program as part of our training and learning that for a lot of our patients, especially the super utilizers, because we're a little different, you know, we weren't recruited by hospice specifically, but a lot of our patients are at that end of life point. And maybe they don't meet the definitions for hospice just yet. They maybe they don't have that six month prognosis or uh, they don't quite check the box for hospice, but they may be in the right realm for say a palliative care intervention, which is a little bit more open. And we are often in a place where we may hear from the patient and their family, um, maybe not in so many words, but we see and we hear that they are ready to have those conversations about uh, the end of life care. And, and how to really focus on what's important to them. And rather than us trying to fumble our way through it, you know, we have the opportunity often to make that connection between them and someone from hospice who can help them really quantify what it is they, they're looking for, what it is they want, and maybe make that connection. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you guys had the opportunity to kind of skip a lot of that and start engaging with those patients that are already there. And that's, that's pretty exciting because I think you're right. It is a new role. It's an exciting role, uh, not just for the patients, not just for hospice, uh, not just for the medics, but you know, all of us. How do we do the best thing for people and leave them where they're at? Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that's like, you just summed up like what community paramedicine is in a wholehearted way. What, what is the best thing for people? You know, that's, that's what we're here to do. We're here to do the best thing because we know that a psych patient shouldn't go to a medical emergency room and have a 24-hour hold in, in medicine because they need to get cleared medically before they go to psychiatric care. Um, we know After that- the 72 hours in a chair in four points in the hallway in the ED waiting for a bed to open up for the 24-hour medical review. Yeah. That's not the best. We know that that is not the best for sure. Suboptimal. So, you know, that, that and, and, you know, the, there's so many numerous other patient populations that we can talk about. Like, don't get the care that they are deserving of because our healthcare system is messed up. I mean, that's the reality of what, like, what it is. It, it's, sure, guiding so. them. It, it's guidance. And, that, and that's really what we're doing now. Like, now. Where I'm at today is that we are there as healthcare navigators. We're there to be medical professionals that can tell a patient hey, you know, this is actually, can't go to the emergency room for your dental problem. There are no dentists in the emergency department. There's no dentist in the entire hospital. I can take you to Mount Sinai, and that's the wonderful world-class treasury hospital, but there's not a dentist there. We have to go to a dental place to get you dental care, oral surgeon. And so, you know, it's just, you know, it's just like, like we love to help people. That's why we became paramedics. That's why we started an EMS. And then we, that, that's how I ended up here. Anyway, I, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but that's how I ended up here. Like realizing that what I, some of what I was doing was futile, you know, like transporting the same alcohol to the same ER over and over and over and over again. It just doesn't win. Doing a repetitive, insane cycle that just doesn't win. Yeah. It, you know, at some point I had this dawning realization that it was even more than that. You know, we, we all, I think, get frustrated with that, that repeat customer, that patient that we, we know their birthday and their social security number and, you know, all of their vital details by heart because we've picked them up so many times. And those, were the, those are almost the low-hanging fruit when it comes to community paramedicine and our, our broader MIH programs. What I started realizing was that 
virtually everything we were responding to emergently was something that could have been prevented had the patient had some help connecting to the right resources ahead of time. And at first, even we were just looking at the, you know, the chronic illness piece and you realize that, you know, chronic illnesses for the most part can be managed very, very well. Now, some of them are going to be labile and ultimately terminal, and they're going to have increasing episodes in, in frequency and duration and severity of complication. But a lot of times, Chronic illness, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or something else, can be well managed without a lot of difficulty if the resources are there. If the person is is experiencing this, knows how to connect, has the right port mechanisms in place. But then I started looking at some of the other things that we would really think about as being a true like one-off emergency, you know, the motor vehicle collision. But how many of those are actually preventable? You know, was the reason why you were on the road today at the time of day you were um, in your uninspected hasn't been maintained in quite a while vehicle with no insurance, um, with a kid that's not in an appropriately sized car seat is the reason why you were even on the road today because the right supports were not in place. It forced you to do some things that you know aren't great, but you didn't feel like you had another choice. And how often do we hear that story in EMS? How often have you walked into somebody's house and within seconds looked around and realized, Man, we're A, we're going to be back, and B, this didn't have to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think you hit the, the nail on the head with that. I think that this is um, – and this is really the space that I got into was that preventative health, you know, preventative. It's like legitimately we're here to – like you said, there are so many bad decisions that happen in that motor vehicle collision that could have been prevented ahead of time. And, and then figuring out where, like let's say, EMTs and paramedics and nurses could do that in a – in home setting and what are the measures that really affect it and so there there are certain things that definitely affect health this i, I mentioned it a few times already heatest measures are they have high blood pressure are they taking their antihypertensives and if they are taking it are they taking it every day or are they only taking it every other day you know some people will just give kind of lip service a little bit yeah i'm taking my medicine oh well like, let's talk about it like what time of day do you take it do you take it after you eat how do you feel as you take it and then lo, lo and behold, maybe there's some other deviation from the plan. Like they're supposed to take it twice a day, once a day, whatever. You know, there, there's so many different things that can be dealt with. But the, first, the other piece to this is also like building that rapport and that trust. In, even in the hospice setting, building that rapport and trust and like letting the patient and the patient's family know that we're here to stay. We're not, we're not just going to come in, spend 20 minutes with you, ask you what the problem is, tell you we can't fix it, and then leave. We're going to actually spend some time talking to you and figuring out what what are your needs, what what do you, how do you feel, you know, doing some um, I love to call it verbal judo, but the real official term is motivational interviewing. Doing a lot of motivational ah, interviewing. Motivational interviewing. Are, you know, so. you know the, the the longer yeah. I've been doing this, and the more people I talk to around the country who are being successful at their approach to community paramedicine, the more that becomes the common thread. And and Dan Swayze again, I, I got lucky enough to be mentored by him, but it was something that he brought to the program uh, based on some experiences early in his graduate education with Jim Prashakas, who kind of founded that whole trans theoretical model. And the trans theoretical model. While I get that there's lots of limitations to implementation, um, it's it's definitely more theoretical than it's something you can say truly benchmark. But it's a it's a I think a great way to at least start understanding where people are at. And the trans theoretical model dovetails so perfectly with motivational interviewing as a skill set. And when you look at the programs that are really being successful, that is one of the core skills people are being trained in: learning how to listen. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's funny because one of the the things that 
we picked up on pretty quickly and, and I've started describing in our training programs is this idea that patients are incredibly used to being told what to do and never asked. You know, the, the doctor says, hey, you have this new uh, condition. Uh, the nurse says, hey, the doctor wrote you a prescription for this new medication. The pharmacist says, hey, you have to take this medication three times a day with meals. And nobody ever asks the patient, do you understand what's going on? Is this a plan that you're on board with? Are you able to afford this new medication because it's probably going to cost about this? Or do you even eat three meals a day? Do you have access to food in order to eat three meals a day? Or are you like a frighteningly large percentage of the working population in this country who maybe gets one decent meal a day? You know, you have coffee for breakfast. You take your lunch with you to work because you're embarrassed for your coworkers to see you not eat. And you beg off for whatever reason. So you take some food with you for lunch at work. And dinner, if you get dinner, is a half a can of soup. It's a third of a box of dollar store mac and cheese. It's something else. It's maybe your leftovers from lunch if you didn't eat everything there. But the idea that you're going to eat three solid meals a day every single day and be able to take medication with that is something that I think we assume but just isn't reality for a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's tough because – for different reasons, people fall into that, I guess, for life choices or just life happening, you know, for different reasons, but our purpose to figure out why, you know, just to agree that like the reality and this is what, this is what we have to deal with. You know, this is what we have to help guide these folks in an area. Sure. So it, it almost sounds like maybe a, uh, a graduate degree in public health and some po- understanding of population health and social vulnerability and social determinants has been helpful to your career. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think it's, it's opened up the channels to not only open up channels, but it also open up understanding, you know, can I reflect on like, is, is this going to be helpful for the situation here? Like if I reflect on like some of the work I did in graduate school, we'll talk Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. For sure. Right, I, cool. I, I so, think there's a common thread again, that we're finding that a lot of the work that we need to do, the roles that we need to expand into, not even necessarily new scope, but just new roles requires education. So it, it's always refreshing yeah. to hear from folks that have taken that and said, I'm going to go look for some opportunities to get more education that's relevant to the direction I'm taking my career. So yeah, yeah, that's cool. Tell me uh, about it. So I had to do a capstone. And so my capstone was um, totally unrelated to EMS and everything else. It was a research project to figure out people were smoking synthetic marijuana. And so the research that I was doing was to figure out really why like what's the motivation for people for a particular population population that we utilized were people in halfway houses so people in halfway houses specifically were utilizing um synthetic marijuana to get a high but it was also causing acute psychosis they were having excited delirium extremely violent insane things like reference miami a few years ago someone ate someone's face you know like crazy stuff happening so my research was to really interview these folks and find out like what's going on. Uh, a lot of the research pointed to the fact that these folks were just, they were self-medicating because they have anxiety. And so they wanted to feel better. They wanted to feel more relaxed. And so they would smoke it, but they know that they can't get, they can't get marijuana. They know it's illegal. So it's synthetic marijuana sold in convenience stores so they can get it there and they smoke it. They feel more relaxed. They feel better. And then they go about their day. But it's, it, was, it was just so, the point is that it was eye-opening to me in grad school to go through that process of spending two or three months doing lots and lots of interviews of different people because I had seen those people as a paramedic, picking them up, throwing them on the stretcher and taking them to the hospital and looking down on them, you know, and like looking at them and saying like, you made bad decisions in life and this is why you deserve this crappy treatment and I'm just not going to really engage you. I'm just going to put your 
demographics in the PCR and call it a day. And so having that experience where I spoke to these people and really got to know them and really interviewed them, really asked them about their life and their upbringing and what, what they feel is important in doing essentially motivational interviewing in a graduate, in a, in a research study really helped me like have compassion for them and say, you know, like they're human beings too and they, they need care and then we need to figure out how to help them. And so I, th this was overseas. This was, this was in Israel. I came back to America. I have my MPH now and, and I really started really this was six years ago and I, I had already started looking into ways that I could help in different ways, which is like really community paramedicine. And I, I started that in a small way, actually with Dr. Manjal here in the five boroughs doing uh, community paramedic work. That was very, very specific though. So it was a little bit different, but it's great. It was, it was, it was great for me to open my eyes and my heart and say, Hey, these people are, are worthy also of having good healthcare and at least a health, good healthcare provider. And in that case, that was, that was me for the 10 minute ambulance ride or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, it's unfortunately, I think an artifact of our pre-hospital care culture that needs to die and go away. And it takes more people saying exactly what you just did. You know what? I had to learn this lesson and I need to pass this lesson on to the next generation so that you don't fall into the same trap that a lot of us uh, we're exposed to early in our career, where it's easy to be jaded, it's easy to uh, make a lot of judgments that are totally unfounded. And I think the deeper into social determinant-based work our community paramedic subspecialists get, then the more that starts getting shared with the broader pre-hospital community, you know, the more we are going to improve the way we manage every call and every patient contact, mm -hmm. whether it's an emergency response, whether it's an interfacility transport, uh, whether it's taking someone to a scheduled appointment where they just need a little bit more assistance than a, you know, a, a taxi or a family can provide, or whether we're engaging in a specialist role like in community paramedicine. Like we become mm -hmm. empathetic, we become ability, you know, able to listen and understand that there's probably more going on here than is immediately apparent. Absolutely. I 100% I, I agree with that. And even more so, I think that this is creating referrals because we, we saw that in the hospice care, you know, CP project, we saw patients being referred to us by paramedics that are out there. Like, you know, this patient just needs at-home treatment. You know, we, we saw it with, first of all, we saw it with our crews too. Like some of our crew, like I remember one, um, one of our, one of our chiefs actually had said, you know, my, my grandmother's sick. He was the EMT level, but you know, manager of a team. And, um, he said, uh, you know, my, my grandmother's sick and I think it would be great to send one of the CPs over there to help, help her out. And so, you know, it, it wasn't exactly, uh, how you say within the scope of the hospice care program, but we got, we got a medical director on board Our our medical director, my, he and I worked very closely together, said vouch for it. This is a good plan. Let's do some at home care. And so, you know, delivering some fluids, taking care of this guy's grandma. And like, we got a few calls and a few referrals just from people that were out there that knew that we have this program and that we care about patients. We want to better them. And here's an opportunity to better somebody. So let's do it. You know, whether or not they're enrolled in the program or they're, you know, the payers here, it's neither here nor there. Let's just, let's just, let's take care of the patient and figure out from there um, what the next step is. Yeah, no, we've been we've been pretty lucky here in in the guidelines that we've had and the parameters that are in place. In that we can we can enroll a lot of people and we can be pretty flexible, and that's been good. You know, we we've been given the opportunity to identify what success is based on what we see, and not necessarily have requirements pushed down to us yet. Uh, it's an enviable position, I'm aware, and it, it won't last forever. But 
you know, the opportunity to do stuff like that, to engage the right patients when we realize that the opportunity is there is, is something nice. It's something that hopefully more programs are going to be able to take advantage of. You know, I, I've always had a rule out for my folks that, hey, if, if there's somebody you know about that needs some help, let us know. We'll roll them into the program and we'll figure out how to fit, you know, fit the details later. Mm-hmm. I, think the, I think the thing that hopefully will get easier is at least from the admin contracting side, pay, like seeing that EMS has a role in value-added healthcare for Medicare, Medicaid, and all the other insurance programs, showing that we have value to add, and then that we can, we can use that value to um, to expand programs. You know, like, let's say ET3 even, you know, ET3, uh, we were supposed to go live a couple quarters ago, but then this whole crazy thing, COVID happened, and we're not live, but ET3 will be, I think, one of those situations that will allow us to prove to insurers that we have a, ENTs and paramedics have an inherent value in get, delivering value-based care to a lot of different populations out there. And I think that will also help um, paramedic and EMS programs in general expand. Sure. So here's a question that I've been asking a lot of folks. Is ET3 the future of traditional pre-hospital care? Or is ET3 what we're calling community paramedicine now? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of it's going to have to, we're going to have to see where, where, the, where the ball falls, I guess, how, how, the, how everything aligns. Or, and maybe I should exp- say ET3 is, is a limited term. Uh, it's the next pilot that we're kind of dealing with on a national level being pushed down from, from CMS. I don't think ET3 as it exists is going to be the forever, but it's the next big step. But are the things that ET3 is supposed to pay for, are those really just elements of what our traditional pre-hospital care services people are doing? Um, or does it need to be segregated out? Does the treat no transport, the um, you know discharge at home by EMS pieces, is that community paramedicine or is that just being a paramedic? Thing is, is that these are still theoretically acute patients, right? That they're going to still call 911 and it's still going to go through a 911 dispatcher. And because that is a, because that's going to happen, um, we're not going to really, we're not going to really be able to do the preventative stuff that CP programs do. And so I think community paramedic programs by definition almost is like a, a pre-hospital preventative care situation. It could be also post-care, let's say, you know, the patient gets discharged and the hospital wants a 30-day no readmission situation. You know, we, don't, we do not want this patient back within 30 days. And so, you know, you enroll uh, the patient in a CP program, like what we're doing t- these days, you know, we call it ready at discharge, you know, so you're ready at discharge. So ET3 really still will have that piece where it's really like EMS doing something that's innovative and seeing if that can reduce hospital numbers, hospital and overall care numbers. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. And it's interesting to, th- when I talk to people who are involved in mobile integrated health, now whether as community paramedics or some other part of that system, they really look at what ET3 is, is structured to do. And I, I get the response that, no, nah, this is not what we're doing here. This is what I always thought paramedics did do or what they should be doing. Um, but when I talk to people who are on the more traditional side of the house, who don't necessarily have a lot of depth or background in community paramedicine, and MIH, they still look at it as, oh, this isn't us yet. This is this is you guys over there. So differing mm-hmm. opinions, and I think it, it just depends yeah. on your perspective and your background. Right. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Good to know. Good to hear. So if you had a piece of advice for another program that was either getting started or looking at how to engage a specific payer, like say a hospice uh, organization, what would you tell? Them? Start small and take a risk. That's- you know, like start something really like as a pilot. 
use the word pilot. Everything should be piloted. This is a pilot. We'll try it for, you have a service area of 100 square miles. You're going to do a pilot in 10 square miles, and it's going to be specific to a particular population. Just even getting like your sort of, sort of foot in the door to start something small and go from there. But when you start something small, do it really, really well. Like have good training, have good experts helping to develop the program and then, and then build that culture from that one pilot because that pilot is going to be the launching pad for possibly a lot of other things, a lot of things that are bigger. But I, I just, um, I think the word pilot is great and it's gotta be the right payer. You know, our, our first payer was like really ready to take a risk really ready to go forward. You know, we got to do something because she was getting 15 to 20, which doesn't sound a lot, a lot, but when you have a small hospice program, you're getting 15 to 20 911 calls a, a month and you got a problem. And then you, you bring us in as a CPU program, starting off as a pilot. And we, we bring that 15, 20 calls a month to zero in three months. That's really, that's big. I mean, that's huge. That's huge for the, for the pilot to show sustainability. And three years later, it's still going strong. You know, two and a half years later, it's still going strong. So, um, so I, I think that's the key, right? Like just starting off something but small and calling it a pilot. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you there. You know, we've piloted a lot of different things and I feel pretty lucky that we've been able to transition our program from those pilots and those experiments to, you know, hard money, real operating budget, um, and then still pursuing new opportunities, new pilot programs, new, new projects with, with additional partners. But what about defining value? Any key takeaway points? And we'll leave it with that. How do we, how do we help programs that are not used to talking about value in the way the rest of the healthcare system does? You know, EMS, we, we rarely ever talk about outcomes. We rarely ever talk about value. A lot of places we're still hung up on some silly things like response times that are so artificial and don't really make any direct impact on a patient, not in a measurable sense. So, you know, I've, I've definitely found that payers, they want to hear about value. So how do we talk about value better? You know, I, I don't know why, but we were really successful in talking about value without talking about value. And what I mean by that is, I, I, I don't know, for some reason, always on my presentations, I was the pitch guy, by the way. So putting my presentations together was like using Prezi and figuring out how to do art and using my wife as a graphic artist, to like put some stuff in. Um, so it was an all hands kind of thing. But I've made a few slides with like, this is the value we add. And these are like the dollars. And, and I got a lot of like pushback from the business guys. They're like, no, you can't put dollars in there. Cause like, you know, people look at that at dollars and cents. So it's, it's, it's putting in that, Hey, this is the value. This is how we add value and being like specific about it. Like we will, we can prevent hospital uh, readmissions or let me use hospice as an example. Um, we can treat your patient that needs IV fluids bedside. We also found a solution for like, let's say Foley comes out, the Foley comes out oh man, they got to go to the emergency room. No, we, we brought a nurse practitioner bedside. That nurse practitioner put it in and then the patient was good to go. So that's how we can add value. And all those things end up with the patient feeling comfortable. The patient's home, patient's treated with respect and dignity, and they are home. And so that's another thing that adds value without actually putting like dollars and cents of it. This is exactly how we, this is exactly how we fix it or how we change it. Adding value without adding value. That's what I would say. Yeah. And value doesn't have to be dollars. You know, dollars are certainly part of the formula, depending on who you're talking. Value, value is more than just the financial impact of a, of a case. That's been my takeaway is we have to get better at talking about what it is that we accomplish and not just the things that we do along the way. Yeah. I agree with you, gentlemen. Yeah. All right, man. Well, good stuff. I really appreciate you hopping on here and 
you know, the whole point of the integrated podcast is to talk to folks that are doing this work all over the country to hear about the stuff you're doing, hear the stuff you're being successful with, hear the stuff you're, you're frustrated and having some, some challenges or struggles around and just sharing the wealth and starting to really understand that community paramedicine as a subspecialty has distinguished itself. It exists. It exists all over the country. There are people doing this work. And, you know, if you're having a problem in New York, there's a good chance that somebody in Missouri is about to deal with the same problem and can maybe learn some of the stuff that you've already figured out the hard way from you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much too. I I think this was like a fantastic exercise for me to like, um, like kind of critically think about like what it is I'm doing and what I've done, what I've done and where I've been and where I'm going hopefully. So thanks a lot. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So thanks for hopping on here and for everybody listening if you're a community paramedic, if you're working for a mobile integrated health program, or even you're just the one CP for your agency that's trying to figure it out and you'd like to talk about what we're doing, please shoot me an email. The links are on all the social media sites. It's just Jonah at integrated-cp.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot, Jonah.